Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, David, how are you doing this evening? Hi, Will. I'm doing very well, thanks. How are you? Doing great, doing great. David, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. Do you mind giving us a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? Absolutely. So I've really been fascinated since I was a kid, really, on the sort of the difference between sectors. So having um, you know, having experienced both living in a small town and, and a big city, then started, as I started to as I started to study and learn about the kind of the ways that the economy worked, really fascinated by the parts that move really fast, uh, sort of seeing the rate of technolo- technological change, and then the things that seem to be kind of just to take for granted or that are slow and, and always there. Um, and that's that's probably been the most the, the closest. Thing to sort of a consistent thread through through my career, uh, starting and working in entrepreneurship in a in a telecom startup at a, um, right out of college, and then then going into the federal government and seeing the very much more bureaucratic, slower moving side of side of things, um, and kind of along with that, I guess the you know a, a big idea that I that's sort of animated my my career is is really just thinking what what can I learn from from one sector? What are the sort of the strengths and weaknesses? What levers exist in in a given sector? And then uh, you know how can I apply that to something else? And that's really meant that I've um, had the opportunity to switch from things as different as local governments, big corporations, um, you know, tech startups, um, and now currently in a, uh, in, in a company that is investing in the future of infrastructure, uh, sidewalk infrastructure partners. Um, and, you know, in, in, in through, all, through all of that, I've really just been, um, been fascinated by how to apply the, the technological innovations that happen to problems that really matter from transportation to energy, sustainability, and, and so forth. And I feel just privileged to have had that opportunity to look at the, look at the problems from from a variety of different perspectives i love that i love that um I, i'm curious having seen all these problems from these different perspectives um who do you think is most effective at solving some of these big infrastructure challenges i mean obviously there, there's some level at which which government has to be involved with big infrastructure projects um but uh, and there are capital constraints for startups you know you can only get so much capital to work on big infrastructure um what's the correct kind of partnership is there a partnership model that works the best um is it just government doing things uh is it uh something else yeah, it's there's there's certainly no silver bullet, uh, but I think what's really clear is just the the magnitude of the problem. We we see it all all over the place in terms of infrastructure that it hasn't um, it hasn't even really in some cases just even been maintained to the level that it was initially built, let alone evolved to deal with the the sort of the, the requirements of of the 21st century. Uh, but to your question, I, I think it really requires a partnership between the public and private sectors. That can take a lot of different uh, different forms, but at its core, infrastructure really is all of those things that our modern life depends on. Whether it's the you know, the clean water that comes out of the tap when we turn it on, the fact that we shouldn't have to worry about our whether our electricity is um, is functioning. So that really means that it's it's something where where government has a has a huge role to play, and government in, in in many cases is setting the stage for infrastructure. If you think about where infrastructure is located, it's typically in public rights of way. It's in the shared spaces. It's underneath our cities. It's um, connecting our cities. It's um, in the air. It's all sorts all, in all sorts of places. But I think the you know, the tricky part comes when you figure out how you know, how how do you even how do you even address a 
a problem where there may be different there may be different definitions of what the problem is. People have different perspectives. There are a lot of different business models. There's technology that that evolves very fast. But the you know the the kind of standard ethos of move fast and break things can be pretty dangerous when applied to infrastructure, particularly when you think about the critical systems, whether it's the you know cybersecurity of our of our electric grid or the you know the the quality of our air and our and our drinking water. Uh, but I think the, the the things that give me hope is seeing the entrepreneurs uh, that that focus on this and know that it is it's a difficult problem and it's it's not as simple as publishing something into an app store and uh, getting kind of some some viral traction around it. It really requires the public Public sectors buy-in, uh, and I think that there's there's a willingness in a lot of places to look for new ideas, given that the status quo is is really not working for anyone. But the you know a lot of the a lot of the devils in the details about you know how do you get that contract? How do you bring private capital into uh, into a problem like this? How do you make sure that there's a balance of risk and and, and reward? So all of those things I think are there, there's a lot of people focusing on it, um, and I've I've been in the sector for quite a while, and it's really only in the past few years that you've seen the this sort of level of excitement. Some of it's driven by the public sector, the fact that there's been some action on infrastructure investing, on climate and things like that. But a lot of it also is, is just the, the realization on the um, on the private sector side that this is a huge market opportunity. Um, and it's it's something that if you can if you can solve a problem that affects literally everyone in the world, that's about as kind of a, a big a TAM as you as you can imagine. The the, the tricky part of course is um, is aligning timeframes, as I alluded to, and the the difference between you know, the fast pace typically of the of the technology industry and their slower slower relative pace of of government and of policy in particular uh, but if you can find those places where you can align interests and and really and really move the needle it's uh, the, the the opportunities are are, are tremendous it, def- it definitely feels like there are uh, huge opportunities especially in infrastructure now um, is it your sense that things have gotten much worse at the infrastructure level in America over the last let's say 50 years it definitely definitely seems that way just with the power grid in Texas and California you know constantly going down uh, you know we think about the water crisis in Flint Michigan you know th- there's callous examples where you know the roads seem to be beat up just like physical infrastructure like we have not been able to maintain it not really been able to to build new things uh, in the physical world uh, what do you think has gone wrong there and, and am I right in assuming that it just seems to work less well than it did in the recent past. Yeah, I think I think you're right and I think that there's at least there are two big factors that come to mind um, immediately for this. One is that there's a big difference between building infrastructure sort of having a um, you know, having an exciting project launch have a ribbon cutting have everyone use something for the first time that typically will get a lot of attention and um, in many cases attract capital versus the critical work of maintaining it over the next 50 years 100 years in some cases like 150 years and that so that disconnect between building and maintenance is I think at the heart of why you know why we look in so I, I live in New York City and, and for example you know we have we have the the most robust comprehensive public transit infrastructure of anywhere in the country, um, in part because it's the oldest, but it also means that we have a, a, a legacy of deferred maintenance we have to deal with. We have things that were designed, in many cases, say, before air conditioning was invented, or let alone before you know, Wi-Fi and, and cell service was, was invented, and all of those things then need to be worked into the system. So it's both, it's about, it's both about maintaining um, maintaining versus building, but also sort of second piece is just how how much more rapidly technology has been evolving over the past few decades, and I think that's the way that's changed the way we use infrastructure. It changed what we expect from infrastructure, and even just thinking about the past two to three years with uh, with COVID and the realization that I think 
had been had been there all along, but that sort of now no one could ignore is just how much we how much we rely on digital infrastructure, particularly connectivity. So now it's a pretty common place saying that 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 connectivity is is a form of, of infrastructure and that broadband is is some form of a of a public um, a public good and that if you don't have access to the internet it's really hard to participate fully in society whether in economic opportunities or in access to medicine or access to, to education but i think it's that 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 change was already underway and it's in some cases it takes a it takes a crisis for people to really reckon with just how severe it is and for things to move up to the top of the agenda so i think there's a, there's, there's a mix of that this is a problem that has been 100 years in the making but also that it's um it's a problem that has accelerated in importance just given the 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 increasing demands that we put on infrastructure particularly to be able to do all of the new technologically driven applications that um, that are part of daily life now that makes sense. That makes sense. I, I want to come back to broadband in, in a little bit, but I, but I do want to ask a question here. Uh, you're sitting in, in New York City, and we're talking about infrastructure, so I can't help but think of Robert Moses and you know, kind of bulldozing, you know, bulldozing, you know, neighborhoods to build roads and all this this crazy stuff. Um, uh, you know, and this is something we see in the PRC right now, where they are able to do kind of infrastructure very, very quickly um, by, I guess, you know, maybe there's this like trade off between, you know, um, the speed at which you can build infrastructure and then, uh, you know, taking care of all the interest groups you have to worry about. Um, have we gone too far on on being unwilling to, you know, displace uh, buildings or, or things to to build infrastructure? And, and, and are we too worried about, um, I guess, negative externalities at some point, like at this point, or should it, it are we not worried and, and we've, we've struck kind of an optimal balance at this point? Yeah, I think it. Uh, I think it's would be hard to find someone that would argue that we have an optimal balance right now because a lot of good projects are not happening and a lot of bad projects yeah. still still do happen. So I think the it's a it's a tricky question because we kind of like how infrastructure was built over centuries in in the United States. Our policies and our regulations were built over centuries, and they were built to address real problems. The challenge is that it's easier to kind of add new rules than to kind of start from first principles and think about is this the optimal uh, optimal system? And in part, it has to do with the the risk aversion that's sort of understandable in the in the public sector when these are systems that people's lives in many cases depend on. Uh, but it also means that as you add one um, one process on top of another process, there are inefficiencies that that come about. And you know the the classic example is you know, if you think about in New York City how it only took a few years to build the Empire State Building, and you know, we're in the midst of a congestion pricing program that has also been going on for um, for you know it was passed a few years ago, but it's been something that's been talked about for decades. And there's no actual there's not the same scale of physical infrastructure that's needed. But even so, the process of environmental review, the process of of going through the the many levels of government, does add uh, add years. In some cases, decades to, uh, to to projects. So, I think there's a, there's a need to rethink a lot of this. But it it's not where where I would disagree with some people who say that it's just a a matter of making things move faster. Is that there are reasons why we why we need to make sure that our environment is protected that. Um, People are protected. For example, you know, it's when we think about how fast things were built in in the old in the old days. It's important to also remember that it was the workplace wasn't very safe, right? And so people would die in construction of skyscrapers and things like that, and take risks that we as a society are not willing to um, to, to take anymore. Under you know, um, rightly so. So, but I do think it's I think it's that that balance is always a bit of a tension. 
some of it has to also do with how policy takes longer to change than technology does. And it has to do with a lot of reasons. There's not, a, there's no Moore's law of policy, policymakers or anything like that. Um, and in, in some case, as technology increases, even if it took the same amount of time to go through a cycle of evaluating something, figuring out what the right legislation or regulation should be, enacting that, that cycle even if it was the same as it now as it was as it was 50 years ago, there are so many new business models, so many so many new applications of technology, let alone the technology itself. That means that that cycle moves a lot faster. So, I I don't know if we will find the the optimal balance ever, but I, but I do think it's something that we should keep keep revisiting. And uh, and you know one of the one of the strengths of, of of the U.S. is that we have a diversity of different forms of government. You know, one city may be very different from another city in how it governs itself. We have you know, 50 states that are you know some people have you know, famously called laboratories for, of democracy. And I think using that to our to our advantage would be would be great in being able to see what works and what doesn't and then share best practices and, and see what works i think the the flip side of that is it's challenging to do to scale something out across uh, across the entire country if each state has its own regulatory regime and from certainly from a private sector perspective lack of certainty is in many cases a bigger barrier than the regulation itself it's you know companies can adjust to regulations but what's harder to do is to sort of price in the uncertainty about what is, you know, is, is this business going to be allowed in, in state A versus state B and does it need to take a totally different, a totally different form? Right. It's, it's definitely a big challenge. Um, I, I want to double click on something you mentioned there, the environmental review. Um, we had on Eli Dorado. I don't know if you know him. He's a scholar at CG, um, uh, Utah State. And anyway, he, he talks a lot about, um, and, and works on policy, he talks a lot about NEPA uh, and, and how NEPA has, has, has kind of paused a lot of regulation, has paused a lot of building because you have to undergo environmental review um, for everything and it can be delayed by interest groups that that don't want to um, have new things built. You know, NIMBYs, um, they can kind of, you know, essentially lobby the government or ask for more environmental reviews to kind of just, uh, you know, extend the timelines that which things can get built on kind of indefinitely. Um, how big of a problem do you think NEPA is? Uh, is it something we should be worried about? And and if so, what should we try and do about it to kind of improve it and optimize it? Yeah, I think I mean, part of it is is really about understanding what the true what the true risks are and and making sure that the the burden is commensurate with those with those risks. And so there are you know there are processes where there are you know categorical exceptions for certain types certain types of projects. But I think over time, as, as I mentioned earlier, the sort of the, the general trend is to add um, add things in scope rather than rather than remove from from scope. So I, th- I think some form of process of basically being able to you know, I, and this is kind of making making this up as I go. It's not a fully formed thought, but I, you know, I, I think that the intention of you know, if you look at every federal form, there's this paperwork reduction act thing. I, I don't know. I mean, it'd be interesting to see how it, if this actually has made an impact. But even when you're filling out a passport application or anything like that, it'll say this estimated burden to complete this is is, is 20 minutes or something like that. There was a law that required that that probably you know, created its own own challenges in terms of added bureaucracy, but. If there was actually kind of labeling for environmental review or something where it was clear to the public that this process adds two years to the timeline or it adds 10 years or something like that, um, I think it would spark some really healthy debate about what what level of um, of scrutiny is, is optimal. Uh, because even in, in many cases, there may be people that support a project in theory, 
but they want to they want to make sure that it is fully vetted but they don't necessarily realize that this is going to prevent the project from ever ever to ever taking place um you know it's not to say that would solve solve all the problems and there certainly there is a sort of a, a general challenge around people not wanting the, they want something to happen but not not in their backyard of course right uh, but i but i do think that it's that having a little bit more transparency in the process would be helpful. I also think another another thing potentially positive trend that I've seen recently is just broader public engagement through um, through using uh, using digital channels, whether it's the kind of pivot to Zoom hearings and, and so forth in the pandemic, or collecting feedback electronically. Because I, the the challenge from from a lot of the particularly like the local level is if you're trying to build something and you have you go to a public hearing and there are 10 people who show up who are very angry and upset about the project that carries a lot of weight with the elected officials who are in the room understandably they see their constituents there and they're you know the the supporters maybe outnumbered 10 to 1 um, by by opponents but sometimes that's not an actual reflection of the of the sentiment in the community so making sure that everyone not just people who have the time to attend this you know a, a public meeting in, at 6 p.m. or whatever whatever the time may be having a broader set of input in many cases can enable the local government to make informed decisions and say you know i know there are going to be some people that are not happy with this anything you do in government there are people who will be unhappy with but the for the majority of the community they will benefit from this they want this they understand it um and it, you know puts a, it puts some of the responsibilities on is on the government to make sure that that process exists and that the people are educated some of it is also on the the person who's trying to build to make sure that they are clearly communicating it because these are complex topics and people understandably don't want to spend hours getting up to speed on the ins and outs of a particular you know type of infrastructure and what the real risks are and all and everything like that so having making sure that there's the kind of clear communication in in a format that people that is accessible to everyone in the community uh, I, th- I think could could help remove some of the, the some of the opposition that can come from it from almost a reflexive um, uh, opposition to something new coming to the coming to the community Makes sense. So marketing and messaging really matter when it comes to, you know, putting new new projects on the table. Absolutely. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, I want to talk about broadband a little bit now. Uh, how would you grade America and, and our access, like public access to broadband at this point? Like how much coverage do we have? Um, how well do we do? How poorly do we do at this point? Yeah, there's a, there's a few ways of looking looking at that. So there are rankings of countries that for you know for decades have shown that the US is not in the in the top 10 in terms of internet speed and and things like that. Um and I think that is reflective of the fact that um other other places have been able to deliver to a broader selection of their uh, or, or of of their population faster speeds. So I think that that's one thing. But the other the other real challenge is that the data has been very inconsistent so m- until recently the fcc has essentially relied on self reported data from internet service providers with very coarse um, coarsely defined uh, metrics so really thinking about if there is service available in one place in a you know in, in a block or in a, in a region that that whole that whole region is considered to be served even if it's really only one out of 25 people that, that that has service. There's also the difference between you know, thinking about access as there being a, a possibility of connecting versus having that service. So there, there are at least two very different broadband gaps in the U.S. 
one um, which gets gets a lot of attention and it certainly is is un, is is easy to visualize and understand is that there are people who live far from a city they live in rural areas where it's difficult to have that infrastructure to their house right so if there are only if there are only four houses in a five mile radius so to take an extreme example the the economics for bringing fiber to each of those may 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 not make sense there are a number of programs that are making some progress around that it's it's typically fairly expensive because just of the the economic um, involved of taking a, a high fixed cost and splitting it over fewer people, um, but that's 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 sort of one that's sort of one problem that um, that there are, there are programs to address and there's there's some progress and there are also ways that, that some technologies inter- include, including fixed wireless access can um, can help address. There's another problem that actually in many cases is bigger in terms of the numbers, which is that of the people in the U.S. who don't have broadband access at home. The majority of them are in cities and metropolitan areas, um, which seems counterintuitive because the infrastructure is, is primarily in cities. But the, both the infrastructure is not distributed equally around a city. So I'm in I'm in New York. I happen to have a choice of a few different internet service providers here. But if I lived a couple miles away, I might only have one. And if I lived in uh, in other parts of the city, I might have one. But that one choice doesn't have fiber. So very different levels of access, even within you know one of the wealthiest cities in the world. And then you layer onto that the affordability challenge that there uh, there are people for whom a sixty seventy dollar per month broadband subscription is prohibitively high. There have been programs to reduce the cost. There's the affordable connectivity program from uh, from the federal government with the support of a number of internet service providers that have plans at thirty dollars per month and a subsidy that can essentially make it free for for certain low income individuals. Uh, so those things those things are. Still problems. There's a, there's a number of programs to try to address it in part funded by all this recent federal legislation. But at the core of it requires not just, not just ensuring that there's a fiber optic cable to each person's house, but also that they have the, the ability and the tools. And by tools, I mean, not just the sort of financial cap- capacity, but the, the devices, the digital literacy, the training in some cases, so that, um, they're able to fully, uh, to fully take advantage of, of that, uh, of that access. Uh, and another, another interesting statistic is that of the, of the people who don't have sort of normal broadband access at home, the majority of them do have internet access. It comes through their it comes through their smartphone, and a smartphone, as as we all know, can accomplish a huge number of things and can provide a lot of benefits. But there are certain applications, for example, writing an essay at home. If you're if you're a, if you're a middle school student and you're trying to type it on your phone, it's a very it's, you're quite a disadvantage compared to someone who has a nice desktop with a big with a big screen and is composing their their essay there. So those sort of subtle differences end up having a big impact on the uh, on the benefits that uh, that accrue and and making sure that more people have access is really key in, in my view too um, to true economic competitiveness across the across the country. Makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, are, are you bullish on technologies like Starlink and, and 5G to solve some of the like problems with you know fiber or, or like uh, actually physically getting cables to people? That makes sense. Yeah. So I'm I'm bullish in the sense that the more tools we have, the more different situations can be addressed. Where where I'm less bullish is that any one of these technologies solves the problem on its own. So I think Starlink is a great example. Starlink means that in uh, in places like where my family lived in rural Colorado, where there was there was absolutely no internet access other than than dial up or a very expensive, very slow DSL connection, they could now for you know 100 or 200 dollars a month have high quality internet access. Uh, so that's the value of that shouldn't be understated. But it doesn't. It doesn't replace the the need for for fiber in a city. The sheer density of the number of people in a place like you know New York City or or even a much smaller city means that it's, mo- it's far more economical 
to run fiber to each um, to each household who then could have the ability um, to have much higher access speeds than you could ever get from from satellite it just has to do with the kind of physics of, of light versus radio waves what you can what, you, what a glass fiber can carry versus bandwidth versus a a spectrum that has to be shared with all the, with all the users between here and the satellite. So there's some sort of physics reasons um, behind a lot of that. But it is it's great that that innovation is happening. Things like you know that the new iPhone can send distress messages over satellite if you're you know hiking in, in the middle of nowhere and you, and you get lost. You can contact emergency responders through your phone even if there's no no signal. Those types of things are adding new connectivity options. But again, they're not they're not solving the the problem um, the kind of core problem on on, on their own. Makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, going off of that, um, this is related. Uh, it's uh, what timelines do you think we'll see autonomous vehicles make up the majority of vehicles on the road? Uh, you know, connectivity is is an issue with, with making this happen. But but you know, is it ten years away? Is it twenty years away? Uh, what's your sense of that? Yeah, I mean the the kind of stock answer what i'm tempted to give is 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 10 years away but 10 years away has always been how far like it's, i can think back you know at least at least 10 15 years that it was 10 years away and uh, i think we're learning different things right we're learning that that there's a difference between autonomous vehicles that can operate in 99% of situations and autonomous vehicles that can replace a human it's quite different because the, just the, the levels of reliability that we truly need to be able to say go to sleep in a car or to not you know not have your hands on the wheel or to be able to go in the in, in an icy road at you know with with fog in an un, in an unpaved road. There's so many situations that humans can kind of um, intuitively deal with, right, and understand if it's safe to keep to keep moving. That a even the the best AV systems now without a, without a bunch of support uh, in terms of um, a variety of sensors, mapping, things like that, are going to run into run into problems. Um, so I, I think it's in some sense the full like full adoption where most of the cars that we see on the road that they're AVs. I think is still is still a ways away. It's hard. I hesitate to put a specific number on it, but I think that that a little bit misses a bigger point, which is that autonomy is is happening now, but it's happening in particular use cases. So I don't I don't think about autonomy as when is every is every car going to be um, not you know, not have a driver in it, but more when can we when can we get the benefits of it to a um, at, at scale? And so I think things like cargo, I think shuttles, uh, I think um, you know, freight and sort of deliveries. There are a number of, of applications where the where there's either a more defined and limited set of places that the vehicle needs to be able to go or you know, conditions or routes that could enable that to happen in the next few years. You know, of course there are, there are a number of campus scale um, autonomous shuttles, um, you know, like rideshare type programs, things like that, that are already, that are already happening at scale. Um, but I, I do think that some of, some of the innovation is really going to be the, you know, the evolution of infrastructure along with the vehicles themselves. Um, and that's actually one of the, one of the things that, um, that my company has been doing, um, through our, our platform Cavenue is really think, is really thinking about what intelligence is needed to in in the infrastructure to be able to accelerate that transition. So right now, if there were a, a laneway on a, a highway, it's the same way that you think about a, a carpool lane or high occupancy lane that was optimized for autonomous vehicles, there are a number of vehicle systems that are either in you know in development or or commercially available that could that could operate with that with your hands off and your eyes off the off the road because the road itself would be able to communicate that it was safe 
for the vehicle to uh, to proceed autonomously. So it's things like making sure that you have connectivity, you know, you have low latency, high bandwidth connectivity available everywhere, um, sensors to understand if there's obstructions, things like that. So I think we're going to see a lot of innovation on the infrastructure side that is going to enable more specialized applications that will still be very, um, very big from, you know, thinking about what is, what does the future of public transportation look like? What is the the way that our, our goods move sort of supply chain, um, type improvements. Um, auto- autonomy is really, you know, should be, should, should be seen as not a single product, but a, an approach. And I think over time we'll realize that the same way that, you know, if you think about like robotics and technology more, more broadly, that it's, it's less one vertical and really a whole range of different, um, of, of, of different problems that are being, that are being solved by, by a whole set of, of different technologies. That's really cool. That's really cool. Can you talk a little bit more about, uh, is it Cavenue? Yes. Did I pronounce that correctly? Very cool. Very cool. And and just the effort. I know you guys are working on effort in Michigan. I was just up in Detroit recently. Uh, So I'd love to hear more about that, like how that's progressing and, and what the plan is there. Yeah, so the the plan um, the, the plan in Michigan is to do a first of its kind uh, connected autonomous vehicle or CAV laneway from Ann Arbor to Detroit. Uh, so essentially, it would be a forty mile stretch of uh, of the highway that kind of as I, as I was alluding to would have the infrastructure needed to be um, sort of an earlier adopter of and providing a sort of a. a a better experience for autonomous vehicles, um, and that's a, that's a partnership between Cavenue and the state of Michigan. Um, it's something that was um, announced a, a year or so ago, and it's been kind of progressing through all of the um, sort of the, the the development phase now. And the the idea is that the in the future that as roads um, as as roads evolve, that being ready for autonomy and having the, you know, the that technology, it will be kind of a core piece of of roads. So if you think about how roads were built in the past, they they've evolved a bit in terms of from if you think about from dirt roads to our our current interstate system. But they where they haven't really evolved is on the on the on the technology side and, and digitally. Um, and we think that this is a a really exciting time for that, where innovations in five G, innovations in digital twins and simulation, things like that, can be combined to add um, add new functionality to roads that can enable better um, better use of them from for a variety of a variety of different applications. That's really cool. It's really cool. So it, it almost sounds like a, a vision where you you've got a I, I like to think of autonomy as a, a wear problem, not a win problem. It's like, uh, like you said, humans are actually surprisingly reliable at some level in that we can deal with all these different kinds of educations and different um, problems that pop up when we're doing something complicated like driving. Uh, but computers are, are less good at these edge cases. So if you can you know, remove a lot of obstacles, a lot of edge cases, um, you could actually bring autonomy to bear faster in, in a variety of situations. And that sounds like what you guys are working on with Cavenue, which is really cool. Thanks. Absolutely. Um, going off of this, uh, I want to talk about public transit a little bit. Um, a, a lot of people, especially on you know urbanist Twitter, complain a lot about our lack of public transit in the U.S. And I like public transit. I would like more public transit. But I often wonder if the problem with America is that we are just kind of too spread apart. You know, it, it, with with low population density, it just makes it uneconomical to build a lot of public transit. Uh, you work in policy, and, and you're quite familiar with infrastructure. Um, What's the deal with public transit in the U.S.? Is it just kind of uneconomical to build, or is there something else going on? Yeah, I, I think the answer is really both. There are there are challenges that have to do with our density and our population pattern. So you have some some places that are dense. You also have commuting patterns that evolve. You have the, sort of the growth of suburbs and exurbs and people traveling long distances to um, to their from between their home and their and their workplace. 
But I think what's important to remember too is that the that is not purely a function of geography. Yes, we are, we're a big country, but it's really policy choices that drove a lot of that, right? So the, so the creation of the interstate highway system was a, was a policy choice and a, and a public sector-led investment, for example. So I, I do think that there it's fun of, there, it, there, it's a bigger challenge to have everyone in the U.S. be connected by public transportation than it would be in a, you know, in a, in a small country. So, of course, you know, a, a place like Singapore has a has advantage in terms of, sort of it's a much more compact country. Right, the whole country is essentially is essentially one city. Um, it, it's it's fundamentally easier to deliver a comprehensive system, whether we're talking about transportation or, or broadband or energy or anything, and over a smaller area. But I, I don't think that that lets us off the hook completely. You know, we have we have the ability to um, through through policy, but also through technology and, and innovation, to rethink some of those patterns. You know, the most um, I think the most obvious of, of which, to some to some degree, is the uh, the change in, in commuting patterns. So, public transportation is. In, in 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 many cases, used as a way for people to go from their home to the, to their office, uh, the reduction in commuting in a lot of places is uh, it's certainly been a double edged sword. It means that a lot of people don't have to spend as much time on public transportation or or driving because they're able to work from home at least a few days a week. Um, of course, that's not an option for for all jobs. But what it also the the sort of the, the one of the downsides or challenges of that is that public transit systems across the country have been struggling with reduced ridership, and that having having less money come in at the fare box means that they have to make for, for that another um in a, in another. Areas, whether it's increased government support or in many cases cutting service, and the the challenge that I see with this is if you if you reduce service and say for example trains go from it running every every ten minutes to every thirty minutes because of fewer people on the train, what ends up happening is that fewer people ride the train because no one wants to get to the to get to the station and realize they just missed the train and they have to wait half an hour. So then it's a little bit of a vicious cycle there. So that's that's a, that's an example where there are there are policy drivers that are within within our control collectively as as a country um, to think about you know how do we how do we prioritize what service should be available where things should be subsidized where they should not be subsidized um, and, and technology is I think just one one lever among many of delivering delivering new options you know technology I, I think has the, the has the possibility to augment public transportation if you think about you know autonomous shuttles that are able to bring people who are who don't live where the rail was was built and it's it's too expensive to extend extend the rail you can imagine a shuttle that brings people to public transportation that's one possible outcome another possible outcome is that everyone has their own personal shuttle and traffic gets worse because everyone is autonomously being brought everywhere. Uh, and the difference between those is not really about technology. It's about it's about policy. Um, and that's what's exciting, but also really challenging about this is you think about what is the impact of a given technology going to be? It's a pretty complex interplay between policy, technology, business, politics, all of these things that ultimately, it's ultimately hard to predict, right? So it's, if you think about the, you know, before Uber launched, it was hard to really imagine how, how much of an impact it would have to go from yellow cabs in some cities to almost anywhere you you, know, you you arrive, you pull out your phone and go from point A to point B. Um, in a lot of places, that increased um, increased access um, for people who don't have a car for whatever reason. It may may have reduced um, ownership in some in some places, but in other places, it, it increased traffic because there's just more more cars on, on the road. Um, so I think it's it's not it's not always apparent what a given technology is going to do, and that's why it's it's critical that there's uh, that the policymakers and the technologists and the investors and everyone in this in the sector are. Are talking and are sharing data and perspectives and things like that because um, the one thing that's th- that is predictable is that the whatever people think a technology is going the impact technology is going to have they're going to be off in some degree right whether it's about how long it takes to 
to happen or whether it's who are the first adopters, whether it's how fast it scales, what it replaces, all of those things are really hard to predict, even if you know that the technology itself is going to work. That's great. That's great. Um, David, I've, I've got one ba- last big question for you here. Um, and it is, if you had to pick one gap that America has in infrastructure, what is that biggest gap and what would you do to try and fix it? If you, you, know, if you can talk to policymakers and, and private industry and tech, get everybody aligned, like what is that biggest gap? I think you know one 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 area of infrastructure we haven't really spoken much about that I that I do think is at the center of a lot of this is is energy uh, because our energy system is going through a tremendous amount of uh, of, of stress of transition of, you know think about everything from the global supplies of uh, of, of natural gas the disruption the, the disruption caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine things like that have made energy prices, of course, a, a sort of a, a very important um, driver of everything from inflation to concerns about Europe being you know, too cold this winter without the ability to heat themselves, sort of shows that these things that we take for granted can very quickly go from being something that is manageable to something that is, um, is in some cases, life-threatening. Right? People are not able to actually have the energy that's needed to keep them to keep them safe. Um, but you know, and, and at the same time, we have a, a big technological change happening, particularly around the shift from fossil fuels to electricity, particularly renewable electricity. Those are very different things. The going, for example, if we if we change every gas-powered vehicle in the country to an electric vehicle, there'd be some great impacts in terms of, um, of emissions from the tailpipe, but we have to figure out how to get that, uh, that get that electricity, how to deliver it, how to charge it. That's a ton of new infrastructure that's needed. And there's a lot of policy choices that are needed that will, will affect where it's, where the, where that generation is built, how it's distributed, how you keep the grid in balance when you have people charging vehicles at when they get home from work at the same time that the sun is going down, things like that. Um, it's, a, I think it's also a tremendous opportunity for, for innovation, um, and for making, making the, making the grid more resilient by, by embracing the kind of dynamism that digital technology enables. So it goes from being a pretty much a static system where the energy flows in one direction from the central power station to, to your home. Um, and you are kind of a passive consumer of electricity to something that's much more dynamic where people may have uh, a battery, say like a power wallet at home. They may have a F-150 lightning that they, that they plug into their house. They have all kinds of things that are both users of, but also st- either storage of or generation of electrons that, that is a tremendous transformation of one of the oldest, most complex machines in the world. The power grid is is is, is mind boggling when you think about how how much how much we depend on it and how little most people see of it and think of it. And the fact that, unlike basically any other commodity, it's it's an instantaneous commodity that can't be just kept in a tank the way that um, you know the way that everything from from oil to corn and all the other kind of commodities that that we rely on. So that that balance of supply and demand. Is is critical to get it right as the system as the system evolves. So there's a, there's a lot of a of an element of you know rebuilding the plane as it's in flight that that has to yes. happen here where we can't we we can't turn off the system while we fix it right. This all has everything has to work and has to work 100 percent of the time or as close close to that as possible, even as we face storms and disruptions and heat waves and you know the kind of near misses in California over the past uh, over the past month or so. I think are both 
a warning of how critical the problem is. But also, you know, I find a little, I find a bit of optimism in that, in in things like the fact that when the California grid was nearing um, a, a point where there would be rolling blackouts, people voluntarily cut back their energy consumption, and you can look at it on sort of on, on a graph and see how quickly people responded and turned off things that they didn't need, and that actually prevented um, prevented things from uh, things from from being much worse. You know, we we certainly believe that technology can make that much more of an automated process that people benefit from in participating. So we, you know, one of the, one of the companies we've invested in Ohm Connect is working with about 200,000 households in California connected to their smart thermostats and being able to incentivize people for their, when, when they're able to, um, to choose to adjust their temperature or to turn off certain devices that they're not using. Um, and that, that I think kind of shifts the nature of what is a power plant you know, because we think of a virtual power plant as really a, a collection of individuals who have devices. They may have energy storage. They may have electric vehicles, and that kind of orchestration of what's being used and when and where enables a whole level of flexibility to this. You know, to one of the again, one of the oldest, most complex things that humans have created in, in terms of the power grid. That's great. That's great. I, I I'm curious. You know, you work in policy, and I'm I'm a big nuclear advocate. It was supposed to be this this uh, the, the next kind of level of uh, energy production for the world was going to be nuclear power. Um, it, we've kind of regulated ourselves out of building new plants at this point. Do we? Do you have any hope that we will be able to kind of build new nuclear plants again and kind of uh, get around this kind of roadblock we've put there for ourselves because of, you know, some scary things that happened, uh, you know, the last century, which were, were not as bad as they're kind of depicted in like, you know, media portrayals and things like that. You know, Chernobyl was not as bad as, you know, these dramatized television series we saw Long story short, uh, we, we miss out on a lot of um, clean, cheap energy because we were unwilling to build nuclear plants. Do you have any um, uh, hope for the future there? Are you bullish on nuclear? Yeah, it's, it's it's tricky because there's a lot of still a lot of fear around around nuclear, and some of it is sort of as as you described that it's it, when things have gone wrong. It's been very dramatic, and it's been right. things that it's hard for people to wrap their head around the the true risk and and, and all of that. Um, the technology, of course, has evolved a lot since um, since the the days of the last reactor constructions at, at scale. Um, I do think it's I do think there's there's a high likelihood that there's innovation that ends up that ends up making a, a significant difference there. I don't know which countries are really going to be the first to embrace it. I think that's something that's shifting a lot in in part due to the energy various energy crises that that I referenced. So um, there's been you know. Pre, prior to this year, a lot of decommissioning of older nuclear reactors. I mean, in Western Europe, in Japan, in the U.S., uh, and kind of around around the world, um, that has not been has not been replaced by by any any new nuclear. Of course, um, I think that if if we get to a point where it is clear that it's the that the economics um, the economics and the environmental impact are kind of make it an imperative to develop nuclear, I, I do think that there's. I think people will be willing to to revisit to revisit this. The challenges, though, and the way I'm, the reason I'm still a little bit hesitant is that you know you asked about nimbyism and sort of people's concerns about you know even even something relatively straightforward being being built in a neighborhood that's changed. I think that will be a really powerful um, obstacle. So I don't know. I, I on on the one hand, from a sort of a um, an optimism in terms of technology that the technical problems will be will be solved, but I don't know exactly when and how. People will embrace it in terms of saying, in my in my neighborhood. I mean, I mean, not even in my neighborhood, in my city, I would be comfortable with the construction of even even small modular reactors that um, may have a much better safety profile. But it's 
there's there's something almost of a visceral reaction or fear to nuclear being particularly located near where where people are. So I just think that may that may keep the market size a little bit a little bit smaller than it would otherwise be in terms of of sighting. But again, it's it's hard it's hard to predict, particularly given the the scale of the need globally. And so I, I do think some countries are going to embrace it faster, and maybe the early movers will show that it is that it is safe and can cause a bit of a, of a renaissance. But but I think I think time will tell. That sounds great. I, well, well, here's hoping. Here's hoping that that we're able to convince people and 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 do the positive PR because it is it would be such a a boon for for all of us. Um, David, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, where can people find you? Where should we send them? Yeah, so I'm I'm pretty easy to find online. I'm uh, either David Guilford or D Guilford on most uh, most channels. So um, relatively easy to find there. Uh, you can learn more about our uh, about, about the company at, at sidewalkinfra.com. Um, but yeah, happy to um, you know to, to, people can find more information there and, uh, and feel free to get in touch. Awesome, awesome. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. All right. Well, it was really a pleasure speaking with you and uh, enjoyed the the conversation. Special thanks to our sponsor, Bismarck Analysis, for the support. Bismarck Analysis creates the Bismarck Brief, a newsletter about intelligence-grade analysis of key industries, organizations, and live players. You can subscribe to Bismarck Brief at brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives. Special thanks to Donovan Dorrance, our audio editor. You can check out Donovan's work and music at donovandorrance.com.